Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to welcome back to the podcast Amos Smith. Amos has a new book, Journey of Holistic Mysticism, Experiencing the Integrated Spirituality of the Quakers, uh, coming out in 2023. And beyond talking about what we can learn from the Quakers, Amos takes us on a deep dive into contemplative spirituality. Amos is one of those rare individuals who's very learned, but also has had real skin in the game. And, and he has almost an uncanny ability to describe the interior life. We have a really rich conversation. It helped me personally, and I trust that it's going to bless you. Uh, before we jump into the interview, uh, let me remind uh, listeners, if you're interested in Centering Prayer, which Amos and I are going to talk a lot about today, you can sign up for updates and an invitation to a free monthly Zoom gathering uh, that I co-host monthly. You can sign up at www.centeringprayerbook.com. Also, if you're interested in my deep dive spirituality coaching, I have a new uh, group once a month meeting that's called Deeper, and I still have room for a few more one-on-one -on -one clients as well as for persons who are interested in my signature deep dive spirituality uh, pastors program. Can connect with all of those at deepdivespirituality.com. If you have any questions, reach out to me directly, deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. Let's jump into this conversation that I had with Amos Smith. Hi, Amos. I'm so grateful to have you back on the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Brian. I uh, I like what you're doing. I like I like your books, and it's good to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, and you have a new book coming out uh, in the spring 2023, A Journey of Holistic Mysticism, Experiencing the Integrated Spirituality of the Quakers. Uh, can you just share a little bit about what that book's going to be about and what inspired you to write that? Well, I, I think the real uh, revolution of the Quakers, you know, the, I would I would say they're the kind of the radical arm of the Protestant Reformation, um, is that they really... Um, saw that the spirit of Christ um, or the uh, the presence as that they as they would uh, sometimes say it that it is something that takes place within so you know in Luke's gospel it says the kingdom of God is within you um, and then Cynthia Bourgeau, uh, who I who I really like you know she she writes a lot of books about centering prayer but one of the phrases that she uh, said that always stayed with me is that, uh, kingdom of God is really um, it's really code or or a phrase for uh, a state of consciousness, and I think that I think that George Fox and Margaret Fell Fox and the early Quakers would agree that um, that you know this second coming that's talked about uh, all throughout the Gospels and, and the Book of Revelation and and so on, the way the Quakers understand it. And, and I'm, you know, I'm a practicing Quaker and I, my wife and I go to a Quaker meeting every Sunday, but, but, you know, the way they understand uh, that uh, the scriptures uh, is that the second coming is actually when the kingdom of God or this new state of consciousness, this contemplative mind, you might say, or what I've, what I've heard, uh, you know, Finley, um, Jim uh, Finley, he'll, he'll talk about it in terms of uh, the mind of Christ. Um, you know, that, that 
this is really what um, the Christian faith is about um, from a contemplative standpoint. I mean, not everybody agrees with that. Many people think it's going to be this external phenomena that happens, you know, from, from the outside. But contemplatives believe that it's a transformation that happens from the inside out. And that's what's unique, I think, about um, the Quakers and about contemplative Christianity. And, um, you know, George, George Fox, if you look into his writings, he bases a lot of his understanding uh, in in uh, Isaiah 32, where you know it says that you will no longer look for God um, outside, um, but God will write a new covenant on your heart, and it will be an interior reality, and you won't need to go to some external source because you will know. Um, you know, you will know the presence of Christ within you, and and you will have that intimate relationship. Um, and and that to me really is the essence of, you know, just about everything. I mean, even when you when you go into Romans and you and you know, Paul is constantly talking about Abraham. Um, what what is he talking about? I mean, when you distill the whole thing. I think what he's saying is that before there were any of these rites and rituals like circumcision, <clears throat> circumcision, before there was any of these temple sacrifices or whatever, basically there was just Abraham had this intimate relationship with God and, and, and he felt the presence, you know, the, and we would say the presence of Christ uh, because, you know, we, we are now living in that uh, age of revelation following, following the incarnation. But, but the, that was everything, you know, and, and all the other stuff that, that followed, uh, including the circumcision and including all these other things, to, to Paul, they were all secondary. You know, it, it, that relationship is what matters. And being righteous, it doesn't even really matter that much to Paul. What matters is relationship with Christ. And, you know, if you look at the characters in Genesis, so many of these characters are so flawed. And that's why they're great um, role models for us, because all of us, if we're honest, uh, you know, live with contradictions. All of us, um, if we've gone into adult life, have fallen flat on our face. We might not want to admit it, but it's the truth. Um, and so, and so, you know, but but as as flawed as we are, we are capable of that intimacy and that relationship uh, with the presence uh, with Christ. And that's what makes all the difference to Abraham. That's what makes all the difference to George Fox. So talk a little bit about the words in the title and how it relates to what you just said. Um, I guess I'm interested in a, well, several interesting words that show up there, um, like, um, you know, use holistic mysticism. But I'd, I'd like to, well, yeah, why don't you just take that phrase and uh, maybe break it? I think holistic is clear enough. But what do you mean by mysticism? And then what does it mean when you put holistic with that word? Well, so many people, when they get into mysticism, I would say it's compartmentalized. Okay. You know, they they have um, this practice that they do maybe once or twice a day, but it doesn't necessarily affect the rest of their life. And by holistic mysticism, what I'm saying is that whatever practice you do have, uh, my practice is centering prayer, but whatever practice you do have, a contemplative practice, that it should affect the uh, the rest of your life. It should have a way of 
filtering through all the different aspects of your life, including uh, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children, um, the way you look at social justice, how you uh, think about the media. Um, I mean, all these things are part of it. Um, so when I talk about holistic mysticism, uh, you know, experiencing the integrated uh, spirituality of the Quakers. Uh, that's what I love about the Quakers is that, you know, they sat for an hour in silence, which they called sacred silence, um, every Sunday, and they would they would settle into this uh, quieting of the mind. And when their mind was caught quiet, they felt that they were most in touch with Christ. And um, and then, you know, because of this uh, intimacy with Christ that they felt during meeting for worship, they, they started changing their business practices. You know, there was there was the uh, widespread uh, throughout England was this uh, practice of offering different prices to different people. So, you know, somebody comes into your store who you know and you like and maybe they you know, your your wife has a relative that's a part of that family or something. So you offer them a lower price. Somebody who comes in as a complete stranger, looks like even maybe someone like a foreigner doesn't, you know, even live in that town. You offer them a higher price. And and what the the Quakers basically said, and, and it was a result of going into um, their their waiting worship on, on Sundays, that this isn't right. Everybody should be given the same price. Everybody should be given a fair price. Uh, and when they first did this, they lost lots of customers. But over time, what what customers realized is, look, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna have some kind of haggling, you know, with the Quakers. We go and we get a fair price, and that's it. So I can even send my seven year old son to the store to get a couple of pieces, uh, you know, a couple of loaves of bread and uh, some butter, and it, he's not gonna be cheated. We know we're gonna be treated well by the Quakers. So the Quakers then started gaining all kinds of business that they didn't have before because people really like this idea of one fair price. So it's things like that, you know, that. Um, that really mysticism should be integrated. It should be um, integrated into business practice. It should be integrated into the way we talk. It should be integrated in, into the way we, we listen. Um, you know, listen first before we speak in relationships. I mean, there's lots of things that are affected, you know, by this, um, this quiet and this silence that we uh, are devoted to, uh, especially as Quakers on Sunday morning. Talk a little bit more about the word integration. Um, I mean, it's one of my favorite words. Like I think about when somebody has some kind of um, experience of grace, whether it's a mystical experience or, you know, there's like a revival right now up at the Asbury University and students are being touched in different ways. So they're having these sort of high altitude encounters with God. And so when I think of integration, I always think about how do you take a mountaintop experience and bring it into the valley or in, into our regular lives. And, and I always think of like centering prayer as an inherently integrating practice, but it's, um, am I here? Maybe we're saying the same thing, but I'm hearing you saying the Quakers just doing the centering prayer, they, that itself gave them these business insights. Am I missing something or like, uh, you know, how, how do you move from silence to, justice is there some other thing that's that the centering prayer then allows them to actualize it's reading the scriptures or something like what what is the connection between the silence itself and doing right or is there a revelation in the silence is that what you're getting at uh you know good good clarifying questions brian um and 
you know, two two of my uh, two of my very well. First off, uh, you know, the Quakers back then, uh, you know, hundred years ago, they would not have called it centering prayer. Okay. Uh, what I usually hear Quakers refer to uh, when they talk about silent worship is they talk about waiting worship. They talk about silent worship. They I've also often heard the term settling down. That that means you just you sit and you let your your thoughts just kind of settle out so that you're you're quiet and then when you're quiet you can hear uh the the spirit with a capital s um but uh but but in, you talk about revelation i you know I, I i don't know if it's uh if it's always overt revelation sometimes it's just something that just you start notice you start noticing that things are changing in your life and I, there's two stories um the, related to integration um that thomas keating told that i love uh, one one story is he said you know you're making progress in centering prayer when the people who used to just drive you up the wall they only drive you half the way up the wall now you know it's it's like this big improvement like they used to just get you just so on edge that you just wanted to leave the room now it's like you can tolerate them you know i mean they still annoy you right but but they don't but it's not like driving you all the way up the wall so that's that's an example of integration and progress is that you know you're spending this time in in silence every day with centering prayer or, or whatever practice you have and you start to realize that you you're not as edgy with people that you have more tolerance and that's awesome i mean you, we all need more of that in this you know this post covid world um and another story that uh, that Keating gives that I that I, I love is one of my favorite stories, is that he was talking about centering prayer in this hall, and there was a woman in the back of the hall, and she was resonating with everything that Thomas Keating was saying. She was nodding her head, she was smiling, um, she just seemed to kind of brighten, and uh, and so after the uh, the talk on centering prayer, Keating came up to her and said, you know, I notice that you resonate with everything I'm saying. Um, do you do you practice centering prayer? And um, and she said, Oh no, I crochet. And, and I and I think the importance of, of you know of that story is that that this this experience of, of silence in in prayer um, you know that that Christians contemplative Christians throughout the nation now in the world are are they're getting to know this that it's it's not limited to uh, your chair where you sit you know in the morning or in the afternoon it it, it can also uh, be applied to your business, as in the case of the Quakers. It can also be applied to annoying people in your life who you tolerate more. It can also uh, be, you know, applied to uh, your, your knitting. I, I mean, my my spouse, that that's every morning. She spends like two hours uh, in, in knitting, and it really helps kind of center her for the day. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to be arrogant and say, oh, you know, that's not really you know, what what the, what it's about. It is what it's about. And, and that's what integration, I think, that's the beauty. I like that word too, uh, Brian, uh, integration. I think it's it's an important word, might be the most important word or, or one of them uh, in the spiritual journey. No, yeah, thank you. For, uh, I love those stories too. So talk a little bit about more experiencing the integrated spirituality. You've given us like a little taste of of, of some of the ideas from the Quakers, but if, if you even go a little bit deeper, what are some of the other um lessons that you're hoping folks get from your book around integrated spirituality well so my so my first book 
um, I was trying to integrate my experience because because to me, experience is sovereign. I'm kind of a scientist in that way. You know, the, the way that scientists judge their work is experience. And I really do believe that experience is the most powerful kind of faith that you can have. You know, in, in a lot of these, um, you know, belonging systems and belief systems, which is what the church has represented for many centuries, for many people, you know, people are not as satisfied today uh, with belief systems and belonging systems like they used to be. They really want experience. You know, they, they don't want to just hear about Mother Teresa in Calcutta. They want to go to Calcutta and they want to feed the poor. I mean, that's the way people are. I think they're, they're moving more towards an experiential faith. And so, and so I, I think that that's maybe the beginning of, of having an integrated, um, you know, uh, experience of the divine is, is to, um, you know, to, to have that experience. So my first book is about integrating my experience with um, theology of Jesus. You could also call it Christology, because that was really important to me. I, I needed to, uh, to have my experience um, it, totally integrated with my th theology of Christ. Um, my second book was about integrating my experience with the reading of scripture. So it's my favorite scripture passages in my second book, um, Be Still and Listen is the title. And, and that's, you know, that, that's what, um, what Be Still is about. My third book, which will be coming out in, you know, a couple months, probably, the publisher is unclear. Um, but, but this one is going to be about integrating your experience with your faith community. And, and so, so I'm, I'm constantly trying to, um, you know, get a, a holistic uh, approach that, you know, that takes uh, all of the aspects of my life into consideration. Um, you know, I, I think it's also important, like, as, as I, I don't know, as I mature with this thing, going back in my history and realizing, in some ways, I've always been a contemplative. You know, it started for me when every summer my family used to go to Sebago Lake in Maine, and we had these two flatback canoes, and my my dad and my sister were in one canoe, my my mom and I were in the other canoe, and we go way out into uh, into the lake uh, with you know these uh, th these out uh, outboard engines, and you know, you'd get into the middle of the lake and it's just so uh, pristine and still. And you're just casting that line. And there's something about, you know, there's the water underneath you, there's then there's the earthen vessel, and then there's the sky above, and everything is lined up somehow. And and there's this this just natural great peace that overcomes you, you know. And and I used to love that, you know, in looking back at my childhood, that's what I loved the most. I just always loved going, we always spend a little over three weeks in Maine every summer. And, and we would do, we'd just fish. And, and then later on in my life, I, I became a mountain climber. And so I, you know, I climb mountains and I would get up on these mountains and I see these amazing vistas. And I just had this unmistakable feeling, you know, in my bones that I am part of something much larger than myself and that I'm in, interconnected with everything that is. And, and science is telling us the same thing. The, the, those trees, you know, those, those trees in those alpine meadows, they have 70% of the same DNA that I have. They are not that different from me. We like to think of them as so different, but they're really not. And in some ways, my lungs are the, micro, are the microcosm 
and the forest is the macrocosm. You know, that there is this interconnection. Scientists, science is now telling us, yes, it's true. All of this, it's interconnected. You know, people used to say, oh, these mystics, you know, they're just, uh, who knows, you know, uh, what they're smoking, you know, but, but that's not how it is anymore. Science is backing it up and, and everything is interconnected. And, and that's the, the beauty of, I think, uh, integration. Walk a little bit. I mean, you just piqued my interest there. I mean, I love, I just love listening to you talk and uh, so much wisdom. So you talked about, you said, call yourself a scientist. Um, you started talking about integrating experience. And then you even used the a phrase, um, I felt it in my bones, which um, I, I know, and like my personal edge now is I've lived in my head most of my life. I've been an academic. I've just, uh, at some level, to me, even my relation with God was thinking beautiful thoughts about God and what I'm trying to do through my experience of centering prayer and what it's continued to do is it's it's calling me to just notice, hey, you got a body, not just that brain. And, and we're talking about feeling. Um, what's your thoughts on how mysticism has to do with, I mean, I mean, I don't even know what the question really is, but like with our feelings, um, the emotional inner life, do you have wisdom to share on there? Do the Quakers have wisdom on the, just the full experience of being a human being and in a an embodied soul, if you want to say, versus a soul inside of a body? Well, you know, I, I had this experience when I was in India, right? Because I was, I was trying to, um, I saved up some money when I was uh, waiting tables and I, I saved up enough money to, you know, to, to go to India and I could live there cheaply and I could spend more time, you know, doing centering prayer. And um, anyway, uh, I had this experience where I went to a retreat center and this, uh, this leader at the retreat center, he said, he said, you know, I feel sorry for you Americans. He said, uh, your nerves are shot. He said, you pound coffee, you pound energy drinks, and, uh, you know, you go through like 50 emails uh, in the first, you know, hour of the morning. He said, you know, I just, I feel sorry for you. And, and, and I, I thought for at first, it was just this disdain, you know, for Americans or something that he was just trying to diss me, you know, but, um, but I realized that, you know, that, that he was onto something and that we really need to be able to, um, offset the uh, the addiction to screens and, and the excessive screen time um, and, and all the social media that we're blitzed with. I mean, we need to somehow uh, counteract that with some kind of quiet, with some kind of contemplative tradition. If we don't do that, we, we just become a bundle of nerves like this Indian was talking about. And, you know, it's interesting when I when I give talks and workshops about centering prayer, the people who seem to resonate most with what I'm saying are young people. You know, they're, they're like, they really get it. They're like, hey, you know, because they're glued to their phones all day long and they need a break. And I tell them, you know, that's one of the first things I said, just take a break from your phone. I mean, it might sound crazy, but take a half day on Saturday and just lock it away somewhere. Don't even look at it and do something else, you know, um, and then extend that to maybe a day, one day a week where you just uh, free from your phone. Right. I do that with my son who's who's 13. He always resists. But but it's a, it's a good practice. Um and, and, you know, and then we have something uh, different from all of this information. We have what I might refer to as deformation. And, and we need that. We basically, we let go of all the thoughts. Instead of taking in more, we let it all go. And, and we really need that to have a more of a balanced life. 
So, uh, so yeah, I think especially uh, in this technological age, co contemplation is so important, so important. And that's why, and, and, and people all know that now. I mean, that's why all these universities have mindfulness classes now. You go online, there's all kinds of mindfulness uh, seminars, you know, eight days long or whatever. Um, I mean, it's it's been proven in the medical community that if you are suffering from some kind of anxiety disorder, that uh, you know, deep breathing, mindfulness, uh, centering prayer, they're going to help a lot. Um, so, so you know, that's why I'm passionate about this stuff because I really think it's it's just the, the time has come for it, you know, and. Um, you know, and, and people will ask, well, where is this in the Bible? I said, well, it's all over the Bible. You know, Matthew 6, 6, go into your private uh, room and, and pray, you know, um, and close the door, right? And and the way that mystics have interpreted that through the ages in, in the Orthodox tradition is close the door to your senses. You know, don't take in anything through your, through your ears, anything auditory, anything through your eyes, any, you know, any smells, any tastes, just... Um, you know, just take a break from everything for a while, right? Um, and and my um, my sacred word, because I, I do centering prayer, is the word rest. Mm -hmm. And I take this from the Bible. You know, come to me, Jesus says, all you who are heavy laden and who are burdened, and I will give you rest. And I, I believe that. I, I believe if we, you know, and, and that's what Jesus does so often when he was stressed and that he the, the crowds have been pressing upon him. You see it all throughout Luke is, is you know, he just goes up on a mountaintop by himself and he um, and he takes time for silence. And there's something so powerful to me about solitude and silence. I really think we need more of it. Um, you know, just just to offset and to balance the the, the hyperactivity of of being, in, you know, some a Westerner, you know, um, uh, and and you know, just I'd like to take this a little deeper because I know a lot of people don't really understand the depth of of centering prayer and what it can do, but uh, basically, you know, what that Indian was getting at is if you do something like centering prayer for long enough, what starts to happen is uh, you start to heal your nervous system. And so, you know, the, the nerves where they were just tense, they just start to relax more. And, and then it also, you know, you have, whether you know it or not, whatever traumas you've experienced in your life, they could be the garden variety traumas of, of growing up and, you know, being hit in the head by a kid at school or whatever, um, or they could be more intense traumas, whatever. But um, all, of, all of those times when we had trauma, we uh, faithfully record those traumas in our muscle tissue, and it becomes tension in, in, that we carry in our muscles in our body. So before I started centering prayer, you know, I had so I had so much tension in my jaw, I had tension in my um, upper middle back, um, I had uh, ten, tension in my lower middle back, in my hamstrings. And over, over time, after doing all this centering prayer, because I've been dedicated to it for a long time, what will happen is that this, this tension will evacuate itself.
And sometimes it's excruciating when it, when it starts to do that because what it'll do before it releases is it'll actually get even more tense. But you have to sit through it and just do some deep breathing. And then when it does release, it is such a uh, therapeutic feeling. It's, it's such a deep feeling of release. And that's what, you know, people like Thomas Keating, you know, he, um, I mean, he was jet setting around Europe in his early 90s. He was like a rock star. He would fly to London Heathrow and there was a big group of people there, you know, meeting him. And he had so much energy. I mean, in his early 90s. Um, and, and it's because of this, uh, this centering prayer, you know, uh, not only does it uh, release the tension in our muscles and, and start to heal our nervous system, but it also uh, just gives us a lot of energy. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, centering prayer is the saving, gra the, the saving grace of my life, uh, as, as Thomas Keating taught it to me. And, um, and I'm passionate about it because um, it's been so life-giving to me that I, that I know it's going to be life-giving for others. Yeah, well, that just completely resonates so much with me. Um, just two questions. We'll see if we can get to both of them. Um, by the way, I loved everything you just said about the about uh, about trauma, and that's the um, um, what do they call it inner awakening or uh, divine therapy that Keating talks about. So, at what point? And I'm not looking for technical distinctions. I'm just listening. So I'm imagining. So, I mean, I've experienced this. So I'm, I'm doing my centering prayer, and I'm using my prayer wherever stuff comes in. At the moment, though, when it's no longer thoughts, it's these, like you just met, you named it, you can get these intense, visceral, bodily, like reliving something. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets really scary. And like, I didn't have training when I was first doing centering prayer. And I thought I was doing something wrong because I was just ex re-experiencing traumas and um, just anger. And and, uh, and I remember th being embarrassed, like the idea is just to let it go. At, at, at what point? what's even the question it's like is it still centering prayer when you're actually wrestling with your body and to release it or have you moved into some other practice i'm just curious to on 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 how to process it like when you're having that visceral experience um does that does that make sense what i'm asking i'm sorry yeah yeah no that's yeah. no that that's a it's a great question brian and, and you know in the centering prayer community you you probably have come across this but what they what they refer to what you're talking about and what i've been talking about they refer to it as unloading and that's the term that they use um, and, and you'll find the same term uh, that other meditative traditions, or, or a similar term, I should say, that other meditative uh, traditions use. But, but the point is, when that happens, um, realize it's organic. It is, uh, it is the body's way of uh, healing itself. And just as the body has certain types of secretions, you know, it, it has um, secretions from the nose uh, to, to kind of clean the nose out. It has sweat to come out the sweat glands to, to purify, you know, and, and get the toxins away from the skin and away from the flesh. Um, the body, of course, also evacuates toxins, you know, through, through urination and, um, and uh, bodily fluids. Um, in other processes, but but the point is that that this is you know this is a um, 
a biological uh, organic type of thing. Because when I've experienced unloading, what it feels the most like to me, I don't know how it's felt to you, but how it feels like to me is nausea. That's how it starts. I feel nauseous and I feel like I'm, I'm going to I'm going to throw up. And then what I usually will feel is somewhere in my body. Um, oftentimes, it, it, for, for whatever reason, for me, it was in my stomach. Then I would feel this knot of tension. Uh, let's just say it's in my stomach. And, and then it would start to intensify. And then it would intensify to a level that I could no longer really do centering prayer. So at that point, I would just do deep breathing and yeah. I would just brace myself because the pain was, was getting to be intense. But then I, I would find usually within, say, 20, 30, 40 seconds, something like that all that pain would would go into a ball of, of like hypertension and and then it would just release. So that's the process that that I um, you know came to observe. But but I came to observe that this is a biological organic process. It's it's nothing you know unnatural. Um, so I don't know if that uh, if that answers uh, your your question. No it, it does and obviously there's some mystery here but I I, I appreciate your ability, I just find it remarkable, even in the first podcast, which I'll also link to that, of your ability to describe what's actually going on, because it's it's hard sometimes to put words, but that I think that resonates, because uh, I've just, cause you, you know, you've seen people cry when they do centering prayers sometimes, shake. Yes. Um, sometimes you just get an overwhelming, I can't take it anymore, I got to stand up and move around, because it's, you're just dealing with, um, incre I mean, incredible amount of energy that your body just needs to let go of from these, um, sometimes, you know, wounds, like you said, traumas, and so I, I just I really appreciate that. So, and this, this was, oh, go ahead, you want to say? Well, no, I was, but I was going to say, so one, one thing that I probably should mention, this is something that Thomas Keating said, is you will be tempted when these kind of things happen, to try to figure out what kind of trauma it was, and, and, and to figure out okay you know this is from like 10 years ago when i lost my my dad and uh, I, I was at the hospital bed and and it was just i never really totally dealt with the grief or whatever thomas keating said don't try to do that do not try to um to you know he said it was like trying to sort through the garbage um, and and pick out oh these are the eggshells this is the banana peel this is the crust of molded bread don't do that he said just take it all and 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 let it all go just put it all in the trash and I th I think that's helpful advice because people will try to kind of uh, intellectualize you know but but it's not supposed to be an intellectual process it's supposed to be a bodily process and just on this basic level I'm taking out the trash that's all. No, and that's so beautiful. And uh, in my reading of trauma, I don't know if you've ever read um, uh, Gabor Mate. He's got a lot of books. He's up in his late seventies. He's a Canadian um, psychiatrist. He's not. He's not a Christian, but he writes a lot about trauma. And he defines. He says um, trauma isn't what happened to a person. It's what happened inside the person because of what happened to him. And just what you just described. Right, right. You don't need. It doesn't. You know. Does it matter that I really know? No, right. it matters that I've released what happened inside of me because yes. of whatever happened. And I just, I mean, I just loved, I mean, I just saw that connection right there from what you said. And it's just the beautiful that God's, because uh, sometimes you can never get to the bottom. You don't know what, you know, because uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a chase to the like peeling onions and like, oh, that was the trauma. Like, well, no, let's deal with the inside, let God clean us up and maybe, maybe you learn, but maybe you never do, but you can get freedom in Christ. 
Well, yes, yes. Um, you know, freedom in Christ and the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is a mind that is spacious. It is a mind that is free of uh, any kind of, uh, you know, uh, fixations. It is free of any kind of addiction. Um, it is it is completely free. And when the mind reaches that level of freedom, it it starts to register throughout the entire nervous system. And the the muscles, just like the mind is, has released and let go and, and is relaxed now, the muscles then also begin to uh, to relax. And uh, and it's a it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It is a it is a grace from God, as Keating would, would often say, Thomas Keating, um, it's a divine therapy, you know, and uh and it's an extraordinary thing, you know, in, in my life, it has been such an extraordinary thing. I really do not know where I'd be now without it. Um, I, I probably would just have screwed up my life beyond any kind of repair. But because of this grace, this divine therapy, you know, I have this beautiful relationship with my wife. I have um, I have peace. Um, and, and I just, every, every day I wake up feeling like, you know, what a blessing. And... Um, and because it's it's been so life giving, I I like to try to try to give that to um, to others. Amen. Let me ask you one final question, and then we'll sure. just ask you some wrap up stuff. Um, given what we just said, and I'm not asking you to mind read critics per se, but um, centering prayer makes some folks uncomfortable. You know, I've heard oh that you're not you're not really Christian, you're Buddhist or whatever. And I'm not asking. So, like, what do you say to like? well-meaning Christians from that don't really have any experience with these contemplative practices on uh, it, that actually think that this is a bad thing to have these healings take place through silence. I mean, you've surely run into some folks like, you know, like, what, what do you say to a person that's open, but like, oh my gosh, I don't want to become, I don't want to do mindfulness. I don't want to be a Buddhist or whatever. I want to be a Christian. Like, what do you, what do you say to a person that's just afraid because they think it's not Christian? So I'll tell you something bold. And that is the Christian tradition, the ministry of Jesus. It began with centering prayer. It began with 40 days. And that was a 40 day retreat. Not only now people I've read books that have, that have been clear that you cannot survive a 40 day fast in the wilderness unless you also fast from activity and fast from thoughts. You have to be, be able to retain all the calories you possibly can in order to survive a 40 day fast. So the way Jesus started his ministry, his ministry. You know, and then the the spirit, you know, descended upon him like a dove, right? He he started his ministry with forty days in the wilderness. So, uh, you, you know, and and it it's just very clear that he was not just fasting from food; he was fasting from activity, and he was fasting from thoughts. And that is how you retain the calories, and and retain enough bodily energy to survive a 40-day fast because if you or i were to attempt a 40-day fast probably by day 10 or 11 we would, our body would go into toxemia because uh because it just can't handle that much fasting so it's obvious that jesus um he 
was familiar with monastic disciplines. He was familiar with fasting. He was familiar with silence. He was familiar with solitude. So when people say, hey, hey Christians aren't supposed to meditate, um, or how is meditation part of the Christian tradition? I say, look, take a look at how all the Gospels begin. They all begin with a 40-day to fast in the wilderness. And if that is not something that a mystic does or a monk, I, I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have any answer for you, you know, I mean, that is the quintessential movement of somebody who is into monastic disciplines, somebody who, um, who believes in silence. And then throughout the gospels, you can also look at how Jesus retreats from the crowd, goes into the wilderness to pray. So, so there's just so many things all throughout. And, and Psalm 46, verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God, right? Yeah. So, so how do we know that you are God? We be still, right? And this has been a, a very, very important verse in the Eastern Church, so much so that they have it written above their monastery doors. Um, but, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Christians also don't like monasticism. And, and, they, they, and, and they say, hey, Christians don't meditate, and they have, they have very kind of fixed ideas. I don't know what to do about that. But I know as I read the Gospels, I see so much contemplation in there. I see so much silence. I see so much solitude. Um, and uh, in, in the way some of the Eastern Church Fathers interpreted Psalm, Psalm 4610 is practice stillness and know God. And, and in the Eastern Church, um, meditation is referred to as Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah is loosely translated uh, inner stillness. And this is, this is taken, this term, Hezekiah, is taken from Psalm 46, verse 10. That, that you know, that this was an actual, uh, you know, uh, way of, of getting close to God is you, you be still. And, and so stillness and silence, you know, those are... Um, even even the Psalms. I mean, who wrote the Psalms? David. What was he doing when he wrote the Psalms? He was off in the wilderness tending to sheep, and and you know the shepherds of all people are familiar with silence because they have long, long, long nights where they might hear a howling coyote or something, but all they hear is silence, and it's in that in the in in the depths of that silence that um, that he produces the psalms. Uh, you know, David uh, produces the psalms. So if you ask me, the, the whole Bible, you know, it's it's about contemplation. It's about silence. It's about solitude. Thank you. I just love the way you answered that with, uh, um, yeah, there's even a, a kindness, contemplative spirit behind that answer. So, so thank you very much. Uh, yeah, uh, just for a, a final, a couple of final questions, but like uh, if, if folks are, their interest is peaked, obviously they, they can pick up your, your new book when it's, uh, it's available. Um, what other resources have you found helpful over the years? Um, you mentioned, uh, I think a couple um at the at the beginning, but I think before we even started recording, but like what would be some like quintessential books that if somebody wants to take a deep dive into this beyond your works um, that they might look at? Well, so if you want really two foundational books for me, I mean, just root, root texts. So just uh, so hard hitting both of these. But um, in one of them, I'm reading, uh, you know, with, with my wife now, uh, before we, we go to sleep, we, we read from it. But it's the Sacrament of the Present Moment. And it's by Jean-Pierre de Cassade. And I, I'm trying to, to remember the age of that book 
is it 18th century, 17th century, maybe a little bit earlier. Anyway, it's old and it comes out of a contemplative mindset. Another book that I'd recommend to you. So the Philokalia is a, you know, is put out in the English translation by Faber, Faber and Faber, uh, and there's four volumes of it. But the volume that I would recommend if you if you want to start is volume two, and most of it is Maximus the Confessor, which okay. is, who is a well known uh, father of the Church, um, and so it would be a patristic you know writing, but. When it comes to to meditation and and mindfulness, these are our ancestors. I mean, these are our spiritual fathers. Awesome, awesome. Well, uh, well, thank you very much. And if people want to find a little bit more out about you, uh, where's the best place to find your books? Where do you have a website that you'd like to share with folks if they want to get in touch with you some way? Well, I, I found that probably the, the best way to be in touch with uh, my various you know podcasts and writings and whatnot is you just go on Google and just uh, type in Amos Smith author, and most all of my stuff will come up. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's, I, I like that. That makes it nice and nice and easy there. So thank you again. It, it's just a privilege to speak with you again. I, I really appreciate. Um, yeah, just the clarity of thought and answer and, uh, and questions and being able to describe the interior life. That's a real gift. Because uh, it's like, I know for myself, I'm still a, a newbie in all this. And I can describe some of the processes and stuff. But I like the way that you're able to make it concrete on what the experience is inside the body, because a lot of folks will leave like, am I doing it right? And you know, there's, there's no real great answer to that question, but I just appreciate the imagery that you do. So I, I want, thank you so much for being uh, my guest today. Yeah, well, and, and Brian, you know, uh, scripture is, uh, I think, so important uh, to our tradition, uh, you know, and, and I think of contemplation as kind of the womb, right? And then what was given birth out of that womb is, is, is scripture. And, um, and so the work that you're doing as as a professor of biblical studies, it's it's very important work. I, I think we need to keep the scriptures alive. Uh, I'm concerned that that many of our young people, many of our kids, don't know the Bible stories. I th I, th I think that's um, that's really unfortunate because it's important for the imagination, you know, to to um, be steeped in those stories. I think they make a big difference. So. Thank you, Amos. And uh, everyone, thanks so much for listening all the way to the end of this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Until next time, uh, show up, pay attention, and know that God's got way more invested uh, than any of us do. Amen. <laughs>